Hi, and welcome to the Well-Read Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion on books and reading. I'm Hallie. And I'm Anne. And we are librarians who love to read and talk about books. And today we are going to discuss books that we turn to when times are difficult. So <laughs> I'm guessing everybody who is listening is at home right now because who would have please ever thought? Please be at home right now. Yeah, please, 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 please. Sitting at home or on like a walk or something and not not in a crowded environment because how much things have changed, Anne, since the last time we <laughs> recorded. We recorded probably th- four weeks ago, I'm guessing, because we, yeah. we skipped an episode right yeah. before we saw each other in Nashville, which was so fun. Yeah, uh, it was a great time. in the last, really the last week, I would say, more, not much longer than that, Yeah, the world has just, or the U.S., not the whole world, the U.S. has completely changed the the rest of the world had got was there before us but now yeah. we are um all basically quarantined to our house uh some of us some people literally others of us are just self-isolating and yeah what how are you feeling Anne? um good for the most part um a little bit anxious but um not not for myself but just for the world at large mm-hmm. um yeah, it's it's definitely a weird time. I have I I know some people who think it uh, nothing is uh real with oh. all of this oh, and wow. don't um and so that that has been a pretty giant source of anxiety to try to argue those mm-hmm. points, but um I'm backing away. It's not worth my time. Nope. I can't nope. change people's opinions. So Don't engage. Uh, yeah, so um yeah, some some more of that, and and I'm I'm anxious because my mom is in a nursing home, and so mm-hmm. she's in a more vulnerable uh, situation. But I've been joking with my siblings that we're we're glad that she's um, traditionally been a little bit antisocial there, <laughs> yeah. so she's she's not out doing the activities that are available. So um, so that's that's my big worry. But other than that, I'm just worried for the world outside. Yeah. So how about you? How are you feeling? Yeah, so much the same. So in the middle of all of this, I moved. (laughs) I moved (laughs) from my old house to a new house. It's lovely. It's beautiful. We are so happy to be here. But uh, I have some anxiety about now trying to sell my house. Originally, the plan was to put it on the market at the very beginning of April. And now we are reevaluating that. Oh, um, yeah. Because I'm not sure that people are in the frame of mind to be going looking at houses or making offers on houses or things like that so yeah uh so yeah but i mean generally we're we're good it's been a good week to just stick around the house get lots of projects done we're very close to being totally unpacked which is nice oh my gosh that would have happened if we weren't here so but yeah i just am worried about the long-term impacts of this i think and and yeah the the people that aren't necessarily taking it as seriously as as we are so Hopefully the next time we record, we'll, we'll know a little bit more about about what life is looking like, because uh, right now it does feel a little uncertain and unsettled. So do you have any problems reading when life feels stressful, or do you sort of dive into reading as an escape? Um, I, I generally have a harder time concentrating um, if I have a lot on my mind. But it kind of depends on what I'm what I'm reading. Like right now, the book I'm reading is something that is out of my comfort zone, and mm-hmm. so it's it's been really really hard for me to concentrate on that, mm-hmm. um, especially because it has a lot of world building, and that's already something that I struggle with to to get into when mm-hmm. I'm 
reading in the best of times. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's why we're we're focusing on this topic for for books that we can just dive into and mm-hmm. and like use as a refuge. And so I think if I were reading something along the lines of what I'll talk about in in this episode, then I would have a much easier time and it really would be something that would that would just kind of engross me and and take my mind off things, but unfortunately that's not the case with what I'm reading right now. Oh so. no. Yeah, that's a, so for about 2 weeks before I just finished a book yesterday, but before that, I think it took me two weeks to read two books, which for me is right a crazy long time. Yeah. And part of it was at night I was doing a lot of packing and things. I just didn't have the time that I usually do to read. And on weekends, we were busy. We were going back and forth between two houses. And yeah. it was just, there was a lot going on. So I, that was definitely a part of it. But part of it is when I have a lot on my mind, I do find it hard to sink into a book. So it's sort of, I'm glad we're doing this topic because I think for me, the idea of a comfort read isn't isn't necessarily a book that's like an old favorite or something. It's just yeah. like a type of, it's not something I'm rereading necessarily. It's something that makes me does it is able to distract me I would say right. you know, not just like it's not just something I've read before and I think oh this is great I love this book it's a favorite it's more like what type of book helps me actually shut my mind off from whatever I'm thinking about and focus on the book so right. it's funny because between the move and then all the stuff that's been going on with coronavirus it has been very hard to kind of shut that part of my brain down but I do think that even when I was writing up my notes I was like yes these are definitely the kinds of books that for me work in these scenarios so yeah totally yeah so do you want to go ahead and start talking about your first one okay so my first book is uh, Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz and so just across the board the books I picked are representative of bigger concepts um, like what Hallie was saying versus specific like I don't go to this book every time I have a hard time, but but it's uh, um, uh, the type of book I would turn to for comfort when I'm reading. And I think that that mysteries, um, you know, already are my go-to. They're my favorite genre. It's it's my preferred reading all the time. But uh, mysteries, especially, I think, are great in um, difficult scenarios because it is chaos made into order and they're popular because they bring solutions and justice to problems um, when the rest of the world doesn't work that way all the time. I will give a caveat that um, some of my favorite mysteries leave lots of unanswered questions, so <laughs> that isn't always the case, but but generally that's that's the idea behind them. So um, Magpie Murders is great for many reasons, but partly because it gives two mysteries for one. So you're getting um, lots to work with in, in one reading experience. Um, so the framing mystery centers on a woman named Susan Ryland, and she is a book editor who edits for the famous author, Alan Conway. And she doesn't like him as a person, but his series, which features the detective Atticus Pond, are fantastic, and they're hugely popular, and she loves working on them. So one weekend, she takes the manuscript home for the ninth book that he has just turned in, and she's going to read it over the weekend. And the so at that point, the entire manuscript is included in the text. Um, which is just such a fun idea. And so we get to meet this wonderful character who is uh, very clearly based on Poirot, but it's set in 1950s England. 
And so that murder or that mystery mur- features features a murder uh, that takes place in a beautiful small English village, as per usual. Um, and it's about the seemingly seemingly accidental death of the housekeeper at Pie Hall. And so Susan is completely engrossed in this book until she gets to the point when the killer is just about to be revealed, and then the manuscript ends and there's nothing else. And so she goes to her boss the next day in confusion, and she's told that Alan Conway has just committed suicide. So Susan goes to Alan's home to find the rest of the manuscript, but she can't, and she gets caught up in questions regarding his death and um, finds that she doesn't believe that it was a suicide. So she realizes that the manuscript holds clues to Alan's life and to secrets that he was holding and there's more to this book than just just the mystery that that's uh, seemingly on the page so these these two parts of this mystery are so cleverly constructed together and you can see um, Anthony Horowitz's pedigree as a as just this mystery uh, like master because he's he's the creator of foils war and he was a writer on many iconic british uh tv series uh like midsummer murders and and he's he's definitely um has the chops to be able to write a book like this and so it's very clearly based on golden age mysteries and it's an homage to those but it also has all kinds of meta commentary on the mystery genre itself so it's really rewarding if you're a mystery fan because you'll get all kinds of things that are mentioned in the book but even if you're not it's still really satisfying for someone who's not well versed in the genre so i find this comforting because i know that when I read his books, I'm in the hands of a master and they're not going to let me down. And these are cozy mysteries, which the the name itself is comforting because there isn't any visible violence and um, everything is going to be wrapped up. And it's in this kind of isolated section of the world without a lot of outside influences coming in. And so um, it just feels very like being wrapped up in a blanket. So, um, so that that's, that's what I would turn to first um, in in these uh, in these times. So, um, and even better news is that the next book he's working on is a sequel to this, and it's called Moonflower Murders, and it comes out I think in November in the U.S. So I am so excited for that. And that is Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz. Isn't that the third that's coming out? I thought there already was a second. No, that's a different series. Oh. The the sentence is death and the word is murder. That's a totally different oh, series. Gotcha. I have not read those. So. Yeah. <laughs> so my first one is The Authenticity Project by Claire Pooley. And what I've realized is that in stressful times, I need one of three types of books. I need either books about people making connections with each other. I need funny or I need super fast paced and suspenseful. Like those are the three types of books I gravitate towards. And I sort of surprised myself because I would have thought romance would have been in there, but it's like a straight up romance is almost too predictable for me. It doesn't feel... It doesn't pull me in enough, I would say, the way I was saying, like, to, to shut my mind off of the other stuff. Interesting. So I can do, so one of the books I'm going to talk about is, like, a romantic comedy. So I can do those because the the humor kind of pulls me through. But I've tried to read the romances that I am drawn to at other times, and they just fall flat for me. So it's just funny. It's like when I think about, and that's particularly when I have a lot of things going on or a lot on my mind, it's like I need something that's going to 
to shift my attention. And so for some reason, romances don't work for that for me. So the first one, Authenticity Project, is uh, about people making connections. And I listened to this as an audiobook not too long ago. It's about a man named Julian Jessup. He is a renowned artist and he's in his 70s, but he's pretty lonely. He's a little bit isolated and he believes that most people aren't really honest about what they want in life and how they feel and they're all putting on kind of a facade. And so he writes down his own truth in a notebook and he leaves it in a cafe for someone else to find, thinking he's putting it out into the world of what he really what he really wants. So people think of him one way, but this is really kind of where his mind is. He is lonely and he feels like he is lacking um, a person to love, basically. So Monica is the cafe owner and she finds this notebook and reads it and puts down her own thoughts and feelings, which are about wanting to be a mother and raise a family. And that's that's something she feels like is lacking in her life. And the journal then makes its way to somebody else who's an alcoholic and it puts him on a path towards recovery. So it's like all these different breadcrumbs kind of that go as the journal moves throughout people's lives. It's like they're they're writing their own their own truth in it and then passing it along to somebody else who can find it. And when they're doing this, they start recognizing what's really important to them. And they're also making connections with people around them. It has this this way of bringing people together. So Monica realizes that Julian is the one who has written the the first entry into the journal and he comes into her cafe and so they strike up a conversation and then he, she starts attending an art class that that they organize and so suddenly like they're they're making all of these personal connections that they didn't have before and it just shows how one person's actions can impact another's life in big and small and positive ways and sometimes in negative ways but ultimately it seems like it's more positive when you reach out to other people and so um i really liked this it felt it was light and it had funny moments but it also covers heavier themes like one of the characters has postpartum depression and she has this whole instagram following where she's she's like a mom influencer kind of thing where she's always posting about her daughter and um seemingly has this perfect life but deep down she's very lonely and she's struggling to with being a mother and what that looks like and she and her husband are having some difficulties and as I mentioned one of the characters has alcoholism so it touches on that um, and it just shows how even in our highly connected world people can feel isolated and lonely and the, yeah. the they might only present one version of themselves to the world via social media and that's how people think their lives really are and then they they compare themselves to that just all the all that's involved in that and so um so i actually listened to this like just a few weeks ago but it was before the the stay at home order came in and so it's been making me think a lot about i do feel like people are being very honest on social media right now and yeah. and making really positive connections via social media and it's it's nice i was like that's the the opposite side of social media is that we can stay connected even when you're basically just in your house with your family members so right. um it was really heartwarming and, and sweet and there's a little bit of a, a little twist at the end actually that surprised me uh, i was walking the dogs and listening to it and i literally gasped as i was walking because i just <laughs> Totally didn't expect it to happen. Uh, so yeah, it's The Authenticity Project by Claire Pooley. And I think it's a great book right now to think about ways that we can help each other and how like our actions impact more people than just ourselves. 
and that just barely came out right like yeah it's like very recently. i think in february maybe yeah March, yeah cool um, okay, my next book is Northanger Abbey by Val McDermott, and I picked this because really anything Jane Austen is a comfort <laughs> read for me, <laughs> but um, I talked about one of her books recently, so I, I didn't want to do another one, um, so I thought I would talk about Jane Austen retellings, um, and I think Jane Austen generally is comforting because it has a, a happily ever after, but also because the world is is pretty enclosed. Um, she very famously talked about how the the best thing to write about was were uh three or four families in a country village um and so there's there's the sense of insulation from a wider world beyond that you see glimpses of influencing the the stories but they're um the focus of of the action is in this this small contained world so um in some ways that could be really stifling but it also gives a sense of security i think to the reader so um then retellings i think are comforting to read because it's something familiar and so you know what's coming but like you said with with romances there's still you need something else to make it feel fresh and so this gives a new perspective to to sort of shake things up a little bit and and make you curious about what will what what changes there will be and what you'll find in it so um so i think that makes it a little bit more interesting um so this book was part of the austin project which was a big thing a few years ago and then dropped off um i i think it didn't go as well as they were expecting but we got four books out of it and those are retellings of all the novels set in contemporary times and they're written by famous authors so the most famous book of of this project was eligible by curtis sittenfeld and um, I almost talked about that one, and I do actually like it more than the one I'm talking about now, but it's a really famous book, and so I decided I would talk about something different just, just to expand things out a little bit. So if you don't know the basic plot of Northanger Abbey, the original, um, it's an, about an impressionable but kind-hearted young woman named Catherine Moreland, and she goes to Bath with some family friends, and she meets two sets of siblings who have an influence on her, and one set is, is a bad influence, and the other set is kind, and she, she wants to get to know them really well, um, but they're they have a cruel father and kind of some family mystery around them. So um, Catherine is a fan of gothic novels, which were a huge um, uh, popular publishing trend at the time. And so she imagines the father is hiding secrets like you'd find in a gothic novel. So um, she she thinks that he's murdered his wife, basically. So in this novel, Cat Moreland is um, going to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival with family friends, and she is obsessed with the publishing craze of her time, which are vampire novels a la Twilight. So Cat is charmingly naive, and she is taken in by the Thorpe siblings, especially um, the sister of the of the siblings named Bella, who shares her love of vampire books, and she encourages her her imagination to run wild, um, but not in very constructive or good ways. Um, and at the same time, Cat meets the Tilney siblings named uh, Henry and Eleanor, and she really wants to get to know them. Um, and she is intrigued by Henry because he's very handsome and and she, she just wants to get to know him better. So they invite her to their family home of Northanger Abbey and she happily accepts. But when she meets the Tilney's father and she finds his behavior to be kind of strange, she begins to see similarities between her vampire novels and the Tilney's. So as you can imagine, this is a pretty tongue-in-cheek book. It It's 
kind of silly, but it's fun and it's good natured. Um, and I will say that not everything that uh, Val McDermott chooses to do in the book works, in, in my opinion, but I really loved the Twilight Craze references. Um, and I, I remember when I read this, I thought it was really goofy that Kat would imagine the Tilneys having vampire secrets in the family, but then I realized it's no more far-fetched than Catherine Moreland imagining them as characters in a gothic novel. They're both utterly ridiculous, and I thought that was a really smart um, comparison to, to make. This book is also kind of interesting because Val McDermott uh, normally writes gritty Scottish police procedurals, and so she's not the first person you would think of to write an Austin retelling, but you can tell that she had a lot of fun in this. So, um, and just just kind of as a side note, um, I have a magnet on my fridge that says, keep calm and read Jane Austen. So uh, Jane was my first thought for a comfort read when we started discussing this, and um, I will happily turn to her in any form during hard times. And that is... Uh, Northanger Abbey by Val McDermott. Yeah, this wasn't my favorite of those, but it, I think I think I felt much the same way as you did about the vampire part. Of it. Yeah, yeah. So it, on reflection, I think I like it more than I did at the time I read it. Yeah, but also yeah, kind of knowledgeable because it's awesome. Yeah, same same <laughs> for me. Where I'm, I I remember it, my review of it has lots of things that annoy me, and now I'm like. I think I think she was just having some fun with right, that. Right, right. So, because yeah. the the original is super, like, making fun of gothic. Yeah, romances. yeah, yeah. Or gothic yeah. novels. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that I was expecting too much from yeah. this one when she, when it's still. Like it just seems so dumb to to be like, oh, maybe they're vampires, but then yeah. it's so dumb for Catherine Moreland to think right. that they're all like have hidden skulls in their closets so. <laughs> so my next one is rules for visiting by jessica francis kane and this book was such a surprise to me this is partly why i love doing uh the committee work that i do for the reading list because this was a book that was nominated last year in the relationship fiction category and it ended up on our short list i believe and it's about a woman named may attaway who is 40 years old and she lives at home with her father in the town where she grew up. And it's a situation, it totally makes sense. It started, her mother was ill, so she moved back in to help care for her mother. And then her mother passed away. And then somehow the situation just sort of became permanent without anyone choosing that. Uh, but And she's a gardener at a local university. And she's generally happier planting and communing with trees and flowers and bushes than she is really talking or or being around people so she's she's quite um she's pretty satisfied with her life I would say it's not like she's yearning to do something different but it does seem a little bit stagnant to her and a poem about a yew tree wins a major prize and a reporter who's writing a story about it points out that May originally planted the cutting that turned into the yew tree that the poem was written about so the university gives her a four-week vacation as a reward, and May isn't really sure what to do with it because she doesn't really have a huge social life or she doesn't have a, a desire to go travel around the world or anything. And so she's not really sure what to do. And she decides that she is going to visit four friends that she has made throughout her life, mostly when she was younger, 
and cultivate the relationships that she made with them because she's been reading a little bit about friendship and she's realizing that she maybe hasn't been putting the effort into it that she should have been and so she decides she's going to go visit them and each of the friends is is surprised but really happy to host her there's no sense that they're like why are you calling me they're all very welcoming and and may is a very kind of a rule follower so she wants to make sure she does everything right and so she reads up on how to be a house guest by Emily Post and so every time she goes and visits a friend she makes sure she's doing everything very appropriately and (laughs) doesn't want to impede on their lives too much and so it's I just loved this book it's all about how she observes the aspects of her friends lives and she realizes the importance of having compassion for people and having sort of allowing people the freedom to be who they are. And there's no one right way to be basically. And, and she's a little bit socially awkward. You may have, you may have sensed that um, sort of like she reminded me a lot of Eleanor Oliphant and Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. Although she doesn't have sort of the dark history that Eleanor Oliphant has. Um, and I just loved how, the book and everybody all the characters in the book just accepted may for who she was there wasn't any sort of um like it wasn't condescending towards her at all it wasn't it was just sort of like people knew that may was may and she was a little bit socially awkward and that was okay and that was just that was her so it just felt like there was this real warmth to the book and it was also it could be really funny because she she observes everything and sort of in her head has this running monologue about what she's witnessing and so it can be really really funny to see how she views the world around her she makes really astute observations sometimes and it was just such a gem of a book it was it's relatively short but it had a big impact on me when I read it about again like cultivating relationships and about how people again like sort of the first book of the connections that people make this was more about less the first book was more about strangers making connections this is more about old friends reconnecting and I just loved it and it was one I had never not heard of before it, it came into my life as, as a book I had to read as a nomination I was just so glad I did it's called Rules for Visiting by Jessica Francis Kane. that sounds so fun yeah it was really good um, okay my last book is My Kitchen Year 136 Recipes That Saved My Life by Ruth Reichel and as full disclosure I have not technically read this <laughs> um, we do talk we do read everything that we talk about on the podcast but this is one I have not actually read but I own it and since it's a cookbook slash memoir um, but kind of heavier on the cookbook and I have loved flipping through it for its photography and I've read many passages from it I felt like I could use it so um, if, if you disagree, you can, you can at me. <laughs> um, so, um, cooking as comfort is kind of a, a concept that is well known. And to me, cooking and reading are my two ultimate comforts. So this combines them in a really perfect way. And, um, other people have written about this better than I ever will, but there's, there's sort of the stillness that comes from following a recipe where you're going through these familiar motions of chopping and stirring, and you have to feed yourself regardless of what is happening in the world outside. So, um, Ruth Reichel is one of the best people to, to talk about those concepts. And so I, I really loved this, um, 
love all her books, but this one I think is is particularly interesting because um, of the circumstances in which it was written. So she she wrote this book following the very public folding in 2009 of Gourmet Magazine, which was a beloved food magazine that lasted for 70 years, and it had this really cult-like following. And um, Ruth Reichel was the editor-in-chief at the time, and she had almost no notice that the magazine was ending before it was announced. So she was kind of ironically out on book tour promoting a gourmet cookbook, um, and she thought everything was fine. Um, they, you know, you don't go out on book tour to promote something if you if you think things are about to fold. So she, um, she suddenly, um, I can't remember where she was, but she was elsewhere in the country, and she received a call to go back to New York immediately. So uh, I remember when this happened, and I had just barely gotten into food writing um, a, a couple of years before, and I remember it being just this massive news, and it was completely shocking to the food world because. Um, people were writing in that they had had they had every issue since 1941 and that their mom had collected them and then passed down her collection to them and they'd been collecting since then and I've never really seen anything quite like the response to um, a magazine folding like like this this was so after um, everyone was let go and and the magazine was no more then Ruth uh, retreats to her house in upstate New York to figure out what her next steps will be so um, that involves going to her natural habitat, which is the kitchen. So as the seasons are changing throughout this year and she processes what happened, she uses cooking to sustain her herself mentally and emotionally. So she had been busy for years as a food editor, editor and a restaurant critic, um, but now she has time to really sit with her family and spend time cooking and eating. And so she uses that time to rediscover the role of food in her life and to take her time with it and appreciate it for its own sake and not just as this professional pursuit. So um, she is using as, as you know, she's watching the seasons progress throughout the year and she also is using food to mark her own mourning period and her progression out of this this uh, loss of her professional identity and to get back to herself. So it has such gorgeous photography and I'm assuming that she must have taken the pictures for it, um, or at least some of them, and she includes notes that she wrote to herself to encourage her to notice these small joys that, that sort of start to bring her out of her depression. And the recipes are just fantastic. They're, they're really widely varied and um, so you have a lot of, of really, uh, she was famous as a restaurant critic for really honoring ethnic cuisine and, and not just focusing on uh, Eastern, or sorry, opposite of that, Western European uh, cooking that had tr traditionally been uh, um, considered critic worthy before that. And so you see that influence on these recipes too, where she has a lot of things for, a lot of recipes for um, Chinese dishes and um I can't remember all the all the different countries that she cooks from, but but there there's one for a, a, a tofu dish that is just like mind-blowingly spicy, and so she she sort of uses that as this wake-up call to get out of out of the situation or the the mind frame that she's in. So um, so I I just I really love this book. I think that it's the whole point of it was to comfort her in her, her hardest time. And so it's meant to be a comfort read and it really honors the, the role that food plays as a comforter that we have um, when everything else has fallen apart. And so that is My Kitchen Year by Ruth Reichel. I love her books. I haven't read that one yet, but I need to get to it. because It's love so her. pretty. You will, yeah. you will love looking through it. So my last one is Josh and Hazel's Guide to Not Dating by Christina Lauren. 
And as I mentioned before, the only romances I really want to read when I'm stressed out are romantic comedies because they just they just make me laugh. <laughs> and so it, it, sometimes you just sometimes you need to laugh. Uh, and Christina Lauren, I really feel like um, their books. So that's a pseudonym for two authors that write under the name Christina Lauren, and they write these books that they move really quickly. So they keep your attention and they have like a lot of humor and lightness to them, but they also have characters that you care about. And then if you like the steamy times, there's enough of that to please people who would want to read for that aspect of it. So they just feel like a great combination of uh, an escape read, basically. And this one is about a, a Josh and Hazel who they meet in college and Hazel has this crush on him and has adored him from afar. He's like, he seems just perfect to her. And she's sort of this quirky uh, mess of a person is, is how she describes herself. Like she's just kind of not not nearly as organized and, and seemingly doesn't have it together the way, the way Josh does. And so she one night gets really drunk and she ends up vomiting all over his shoes. And then another time sends him a mortifying email when she is on drugs after being at the dentist and she's all like hopped up on drugs. So she is um, absolutely horrified at what she has done. And she swears, like, even though she has this crush on him, she's like, I have to avoid seeing him altogether because uh, he thinks I am a mess. And so she goes about her life. He goes about his life. And 10 years later, they are at a dinner party. She is at a dinner party and uh, at her friend Emily's. And she realizes that Emily's brother that she's been talking about for however long they've known each other is actually Josh. And he is there that night. And they are reintroduced to each other. And Hazel decides the best thing to do is become best friends with Josh because that way she can still be around him. But she doesn't have to be vulnerable to his rejection if he doesn't like her in the way that she liked him in college and so they even though they're kind of opposites they um they really love hanging out together and he they they balance each other really well so he's really mellow like I said very straight laced and she has this really high energy free spirit vibe about her and they just really like they just make each other laugh and they get along really really well and so they spend a lot of time together and then Hazel's apartment floods and Josh offers that she can come live with him until her apartment is repaired. And they they decide, oh, and, and around the same time that he has been dating somebody and that relationship ends. And so they decide they're going to set each other up on blind dates that turn out to be like hilarious, hilariously bad blind dates. And they sort of try to one up each other on like what, who they can find next to set them up with. And they're always after these blind dates go to pieces they always end up back together sharing their story and they realize how much time they like spending together and that maybe there is more of a mutual attraction that they can't resist and it was just it's such a funny quick cute read and it's it's like it just feels like kind of when the 90s with the romantic comedies were so popular in the movie theaters it feels sort of like that to me like when harry met sally kind of thing and it just i thought it was delightful it kept me smiling the whole time it is josh and hazel's guide to not dating by christina lauren it does sound fun i agree that that romantic comedies are kind of the thing that that you want in this yeah. kind of situation <laughs> yeah i think so i think so all right so we will be right back with what we're reading this week
Okay, Anne, what are you reading? I'm reading The Paris Library by Janet Skesling, I think is how you pronounce her last name, Charles. Um, so Janet Skesling Charles. Yes. <laughs> let's, let's go with that. Yeah. Um, and this is a time slip novel, which um, means that it's two different time periods with something central to tie each other or to tie them together. Um, and the, the narrative goes back and forth between them. So this actually comes out in uh, June. And the um, publisher rep who presented this to us just said, Paris, World War II, libraries. That's all you need to know. <laughs> um, and so people are going to eat this up because it has everything that everyone loves right now. So the historical section is set in 1939, and it opens with a young Parisian woman named Odile going to an interview for a dream job at the American Library in Paris. And she studied to be a librarian, but this would be her first librarian job, um, which is something that I think... Hallie and I can identify with. Yes. <laughs> um, and so her life uh, has been pretty small to this point. So she um, lives with her parents and her brother, and her father is either a, the police chief. I can't remember if he's the police chief or he he's involved with the police. He works as a policeman, but he's very conservative. And her brother is is starting to become more radical as he's seeing. Uh, things developing in Europe. Um, so there's a little bit of like a combative energy going on in her house. And so Odile finds comfort in the world of books as she always has done. So she gets this job and she loves working there. She loves the patrons. She loves helping people. And she sees the, the library as this refuge for all kinds of people from different walks of life. And at the same time, she's starting to uh, get into a tentative relationship with a young police officer that her father actually had set her up with. And, and you, normally she hated uh, those kinds of setups, but this one, this guy actually seems um, promising. And so the world outside of Paris is starting to become chaotic, but everything in her own life is kind of looking up for her until the, the Nazis march into Paris and everything she knows falls apart. So the, the, I wrote it down as the modern day section, but it's actually 1983 and I'm depressed at how it's not, not long ago that, that is. <laughs> yeah. um, that is set in Montana and um, it's uh, about a 12 year old girl named Lily who is lonely and isolated at school and she becomes fascinated with the mysterious French elderly next door neighbor. Um, in her town and the rest of the town distrusts this neighbor but um, because everyone is from the small town and no one has ever left and Odile the neighbor is the only outsider and she's been there for decades and she still isn't accepted so Lily begins visiting her and they discover shared interests including a love of reading but tragedy enters Lily's life and so they become even closer and they don't realize that they have a common link that has been a secret to both of them and I haven't gotten to that part yet so I don't know what that is um but the book is based on real librarians of the American Library in Paris who fought to keep the library open and uh, serving all walks of life during the war and worked as part of the French resistance. And um, and so that's a really cool story that I had never heard before. And so it has real characters from that, um, uh, or re real people as characters who, who uh, existed during that time. And as I, this just happened to be what I'm reading, but um, I realized it's totally pertinent to this episode because it has a strong message of books and libraries as a sanctuary for people and it's a place where you can shut out noise and find peace and books are 
uh, what brings so many of us together. So that is The Paris Library by Janet Skesleen Charles. Oh, it sounds so good. Yeah, I think it's going to be big. Yeah. All right. So what I'm reading this week is The Return by Rachel Harrison. And this one is really creepy. So this is a horror book that I picked up on a co-worker's recommendation. And it is about a woman named Julie who two years ago disappeared while hiking in Acadia National Park alone. And one day, so they, they you know, first they're searching for her. They investigate her husband, all the things you would expect them to do. And after maybe a year or so, they have a funeral for her because they assume that she is gone. But um, Elise, the narrator of the book, is, is always convinced that she is out there somewhere and that they just haven't found her yet. And so one day, two years after her disappearance, she reappears on her front porch, just sitting there. Her husband finds her and she has no memory of what happened to her or where she was or anything. And so they're uh, Elise and Julie, and then they have two other friends who were all, um, I, they all met in college and were, were very close friends and then now have sort of scattered as adults into different parts of the country, but they still stay in touch. And May suggests, one of the friends suggests a weekend away uh, in the Catskills at this, this little boutique hotel with uh, all four of them so that they can celebrate Julie's return and reconnect and see each other and, and do what best friends do who've been apart for a little while. And so they all show up and they're, they're, Elise is a little bit apprehensive about it. She feels like it's too soon after Julie's return to have any sort of forced fun. But her friend May is just adamant about it. And so she goes along with it. And when they all get there, Julie seems very different from who she was when she left. She she looks terrible, first of all. She's very, very emaciated. There are lots of descriptions of how her skin sort of like hangs on her bones. Like it doesn't seem like that she's healthy at all. Uh, she has, her teeth have sort of rotted a little bit. And so she has terrible breasts. She doesn't smell very good. And they're all, they're all sort of tiptoeing around it because they don't know how to how to handle it best that she's clearly been through a trauma but she doesn't remember it and so they don't want to put her in a defensive place but then there are other weird things like she was a lifelong vegetarian since the time she was a small child and when they sit down to eat dinner for the first night she orders a steak and like tears into it with a really voracious appetite and it seems it just all seems like a little bit off and a little bit unusual and the hotel where they're staying also seems just maybe not quite right like the rooms are all decorated in these kind of extreme fashions and the owner is a little odd and just everything nothing seems quite what they were hoping for in a fun weekend way for like a girls weekend and elise keeps seeing out of the corner of her eye she'll see movement or sort of a shadowy figure and she's not every and then she'll turn her head and it's gone and she doesn't know what it is so it's all just this very unsettling feeling and there's this looming sense of dread throughout the book because they're trying to figure out what is wrong with julie where was she what happened while she was gone and then like how how are are they ever going to be able to get back to normal so it's like i said very creepy uh, and as I said at the beginning, one of the things I need in a book 
if I want it to be as distracting. It's very fast paced and like just keeps you wanting to find out what happens next. And this one definitely did that for me. I had a lot of tension that just sort of simmered throughout and kept ramping up and ramping up until the very end. Um, and it was it was great. It was really good. If you like, it was I had to read it during the day. I couldn't read it at night. It was a little too creepy for, <laughs> for me for that. Uh, but if you like that sort of thing, it's The Return by Rachel Harrison. It's blowing my mind a little bit that you're recommending uh, horror books. <laughs> Just it's such I know. A, a change. I know. <sighs> well, and part of it is. I need to read them. You know, yeah. part of it is just I, I need to read them for you have the to. committee I'm on. Yeah, but it's, I'm, it's, some of them, still not my thing. If it gets too gory, I don't like yeah, that. Yeah, agreed. But, agreed. Uh, all right. Well, let's go back and list off everything that we talked about, Anne. Okay. I talked about uh, Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz, Northanger Abbey by Val McDermott, My Kitchen Year by Ruth Reichel, and what I'm reading this week is The Paris Library by Janet Skesseline Charles. And I talked about The Authenticity Project by Claire Pooley, Rules for Visiting by Jessica Francis Kane, Josh and Hazel's Guide to Not Dating by Christina Lauren, and what I was reading this week was The Return by Rachel Harrison. Uh, I hope that everybody is well who is listening to this podcast and safe and healthy. If you'd like to get in touch with us to give us feedback or a suggestion on a topic you'd like us to discuss or you need a book recommendation or anything like that, you can email us at wellreadpod at gmail.com. You can find us on our Facebook page or on Twitter at wellreadpodcast. If you follow us on our Facebook page, you got to see the my favorite room of my new house, which has <laughs> built-in bookshelves and is painted pink, and it's like my favorite thing ever. If you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your other podcast provider of choice, it really helps people find the show, and we would very much appreciate that. Our theme music is Kitten by Poddington Bear. We keep our show notes at wellreadpodcast.wordpress.com, where you can find a listing of every book we talked about in this episode. Thank you all for listening. Happy reading.